Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of our BQ Chats Scripture Dive. Today we're going to do half of Acts chapter 7, as everyone I'm sure knows. Acts chapter 7 is a long 60 verses, um, but today we are going to cover the first 34. And then we will have uh, another episode out on the last half of Acts chapter 7. We won't be doing our charting today, but we will be covering pronouns as well, and then maybe have a good chat at the end of the episode. So, with that, we're going to dive right in. Um, does somebody, uh, probably Eric, Eric, do you want to kind of set us up from the end of chapter 6 and bring us into chapter 7? Yeah, sure thing. So, as you remember, maybe from last time that we did our podcast, Brother Fobear did a great job talking about the accusations that were held against Stephen. Um, the Sanhedrin accused Stephen of speaking against Moses, um, God, the holy place, which would have been the temple and the law. And so it's pretty interesting that throughout the 60 verses of Acts chapter 7, you're going to see Stephen directly address each one of these accusations, maybe not explicitly, like in a list format, but throughout his recount of the Old Testament and um, the covenant that God made throughout the Old Testament with the people of Israel, he's going to address those points. And so it's, I think Brother Fobear mentioned this uh, last time, but it's kind of odd if you're just kind of reading the chapter. It seems like Stephen is just giving a brief history of the Old Testament and the people of Israel. And so it kind of comes at a shock whenever the Jews, the Sanhedrin, take up stones, right, to stone Stephen at the end of the chapter. But Stephen is purposefully taking stories from the Old Testament, right, to flip the accusations of the Sanhedrin on, on its head. And they're say, he's saying, you know, you're accusing me, right, of defiling the temple. You're accusing me of defiling the law and um, speaking against God and Moses, but really I'm the one that's pointing to the fulfillment of all those things, which is the person of Jesus Christ. And so you really, I mean, the, the early church, the early Christian movement was birthed out of a Jewish tradition. And you really can't understand, right, the magnitude of, of Jesus Christ and the church in the first century, unless you have a good solid foundation of the Old Testament. And, and Stephen is trying in a, Great. And one of probably the best sermons of the book of Acts, he's trying to connect all of the promises of the Old Testament to the fulfillment of all those things in the person of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And we'll see that in Stephen's sermon here. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't have said it any better myself. And it that you made a statement in what when you were saying that, Eric, that I thought of when I was preparing for this podcast it was as if it was a mini history lesson of the old testament that stephen gives i mean he covers abraham he covers moses he covers jacob he covers joseph he covers the egyptian slavery he covers it all as we'll see as we jump into this um so starting off I'm a, i'll start my first um, passage and we'll start with verse one the bible says then said the high priest are these things so and he said referring to stephen Men, brethren, and fathers, hearken. The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Quran. I think that's how you say it. If it's not, correct me. <laughs> and said unto him, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and come into the land which I shall show thee. Of course, Stephen is recapping uh, the commandment that God gave to Abraham. Uh, verse 4 reads, Then came he out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Quran. 
And from thence, when his father was dead, he removed him into his land, wherein ye now dwell. And he gave him none inheritance in it, no, not so much as to set his foot on. Yet he promised that he would give it to him for a possession, and to his seed after him, when as yet he had no child. And God spake on this wise, that his seed should sojourn in a strange land, and that they should bring them into bondage, and entreat them evil four hundred years. This, of course, is referring to the Egyptian captivity and the Egyptian bondage that the Israelite or the Hebrew nation at that time uh, would suffer with um, after uh, the life of Joseph. Verse 7 reads, And the nation to whom they shall be in bondage will I judge, said God. And after that shall they come forth and serve me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begat Isaac and circumcised him the eighth day. And Isaac begat Jacob and Jacob begat the twelve patriarchs. And I'll stop right there for my first passage and open it up to the floor. Um, what, what did you guys take away from these first eight verses? Um, I don't know who wants to start. Jonathan, go ahead. <laughs> sure. So I think... As all of you have said so far, I think we have a really awesome look at how the Old Testament is used in the New Testament. Um, it's kind of funny to me when I'm reading through the New Testament, we talk about scripture and, you know, quoting the word of God, memorizing the word of God. And we talk about how Jesus was speaking to the apostles to study. Um, but at that time, the only scripture that existed was the Old Testament. And I think sometimes we forget about that, but these were the scriptures that they're studying. These were the stories that they knew from childhood that they were literally memorizing, just like we do the Bible word for word growing up. Uh, I thought that was really cool. So these, these are the scriptures. And, and we think about the New Testament uh, heroes using them in their doctrine as they write their own books. And this is not something that uh, the New Testament is not something new necessarily that they're coming up with, not new in the sense that they, you know, thought it up or that Jesus necessarily even revealed it to them um, as apart from the Old Testament. As y'all have said, these are all showing exactly where the promises were, how they were fulfilled, and why it is that Jesus was actually the Messiah. Because, and, and this is perhaps a little more than what Stephen mentions precisely, but there are lots and lots of prophecies about who the Messiah would be when he comes, and Jesus fulfilled about half of them, all the ones about peace and about coming and about dying and buying his people back. And there are a lot more about judgment and about righteousness that he will fulfill when he comes the second time. But I think a lot of the, the work that the apostles had to do in that time was to show, hey, this is what Jesus claimed to fulfill. This is what he did fulfill. And this is what he's going to do. And putting that in the context is what Stephen's trying to do today. And one thing that I think is really cool, just about how Stephen goes through, because he touches on a lot in the Old Testament, but uh, the parts that he hits mainly focuses on the covenantal relationship with God and his chosen people. First, the covenant of faith that he made with Abraham and, uh, you know, the whole in thy seed uh, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. You know, Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. But then we also see the covenant of the law, you know, the Mosaic law that he made with Moses. But I just find it interesting that we're going to really the snapshot of all of this is God's covenant. You know, which, and then he gets into, he uses that to lead it into Jesus, who is now the, uh, the maker of the new covenant, the new Testament, right? So Stephen is, you know, he's hitting on all of that in terms of the covenantal relation or covenantal relationship with God and his chosen people or just his people in general. Yeah. And kind of to mention what you were talking about, Avery, you know, at the beginning of the passage, whenever he's talking about Abraham, 
he he's trying to address these accusations, right? That they came and brought against him, which was that you're talking against the the temple, you're talking against Moses and the law. And he's saying before there was no te- before there was any temple, right? Whenever there was nothing, the God of glory appeared to Abraham. And so he's going to really hit it hard at the end of the passage whenever he says that the Most High doesn't dwell in temples made with hands, but he's right. He's everywhere. He's omnipresent and he can move in whatever way he wants to. And we see that at the beginning of his sermon, whenever he says the Lord of glory, right, appeared to Abraham whenever he was in the desert, right, whenever he was in Mesopotamia. And obviously he he moved, he moved upon Abraham to leave that place and to go into the place where he was calling him to go. And I think the two, you know, that he, he mentions a lot of covenants in this chapter, like you mentioned, Avery. And and Stephen's kind of looking at it from he's he's seeing that what's happening in the book of Acts is just a continuation, right, of all those covenants that God made in the Old Testament. And we see that really first in, in Acts chapter two, right? In the present day, whenever God poured out his spirit, that was the fulfillment of the new covenant that God was going to make whenever he said, I'm going to put my my spirit, my law within your hearts, and you're going to be my people and I'm going to be your God. Just like circumcision, right? Was a physical symbol or a sign in verse eight of what God made with Abraham and his lineage. And the same way, right? Tongues is a, is a physical sign of what God gave us in the covenant of, of his spirit in Acts chapter two. So Stephen sees not these stories as just these stories in a vacuum somewhere, right? In the old Testament, he sees these stories as present and as, you know, relative to what's going on in, in the first century in the book of Acts. And he's trying to show the people, right? Just like Peter attempted to do in the previous chapters, that this isn't a new gospel, right? This isn't a new Bible that's separate from the Old Testament. This is just the continuation of the Old Testament. You, it's very Eric, good. Oh, go ahead, Phil. No, I was going to just say, uh, does any does does everyone anyone want to share a quick like thirty seconds favorite thing about Abraham? I know we're talking kind of about broad chapter, but like when it comes to Abraham, um, any have anybody have like a favorite thing about Abraham they can share real quick? There are so many details about even just these couple verses that Stephen mentions about Abraham, where we can really just dive in head first and give a you whole lot. My f- Go ahead, Logan. What? I was just going to make one statement. You want to talk about faith. It, you get into the faith of Abraham just on these two verses or just on this little passage that he covers the faith to leave a land of the Chaldeans, a home that he had because he heard a voice. <laughs> None of their other mm-hmm. gods that they were serving at that time spoke. And yet he goes, and if we take our knowledge of, you know, the story of Abraham, we, Abraham just hears a voice and goes and tells his wife, all right, we're leaving. He left home. Like, how, how are you going to convince, you've never heard this before. You've never had this experience. And all of a sudden you hear a voice telling you to leave and go live in a different land. And not to live in a different land, but to march around the land that God's going to eventually promise you even though you've never even had a son yet. The faith that Abraham demonstrated in his life, it's why we call him the father of the faith, is a father of the faithful, father of the faith. I I can't remember what term we use, but just those few verses demonstrate that. And Avery, I completely jumped all over you, so I'm sorry. (laughs) No, you're good, man. And I honestly, picking up off of that, um, Eric, uh, there was a back uh, when COVID was kind of in full swing, me, Logan, and Eric, we both went through, 
the book of Genesis actually together. And we did like a little mini Bible study, Bible discussion, kind of like we're doing right now, just not on a podcast. <laughs> but what, uh, when we talked about Abraham, Eric, you said something awesome. When God called him to come out of his country, instead of going to Canaan, uh, immediately he actually dwelled in this area called Haran, or as we see here, Quran, or uh, however that's pronounced. But um, what we see in Hebrew, that word uh, Quran actually means barrenness. You know, it's a land of barrenness. And it's interesting too, because when you go back to the original command that God gives Abraham, he's like, go leave this land that you're in and leave your family. But what we see is Abraham actually brings some of his family with him one including his father who was an idolater and his father i believe was named tara and if you look at the hebrew name for his dad tara in the hebrew it means delay so here's abraham god gives abraham this great promise that he is going to be a father of many nations but after immediately following this uh, or immediately following this interaction with god abraham abraham goes to the land of barrenness who in a way he didn't fully obey what God told him to do and took his father with him. And because of that, he delayed kind of what God was able to do. So yes, we do see the faith of Abraham, but in a way we see kind of an imperfect faith in Abraham, but God was able to even use that imperfect faith of Abraham and bring apart and bring one of the greatest promises to fulfillment, you know, who, um, and Abraham's seed would all the nations of the earth be blessed. Ultimately that being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Right. So that reminds me of if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, God can use that. The littlest amount of faith, the most imperfect faith, you know, obviously God wants us to be obedient and to uh, grow in our faith. But we, if we start out our journey with just a little bit of faith, God can grow that into one of the greatest promises in our life. And that's well, one thing I love about Abraham. I think uh, one thing I love about going off what you just said, you know, faith and obedience but you can't you can't unlink the two because if mm -hmm. he just believed what the voice told him and just said yeah but i believe that that's real voice and they really told me but he didn't move he didn't do anything that's not that's not faith right so he didn't he couldn't just believe he had to get up and follow what uh what the voice told him to do right yeah so, so much so that you know hebrews 11 says by faith abraham sojourned you know right. all yeah. of it was by faith Mm -hmm. I, I wanted to point out that it is Quran, according to our study guide this year. So uh, that is what we're going to try and say. And I wanted and, to bring up one little thing about that, too. Um, Stephen's reciting from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. So if you look at other versions, you might see the original Hebrew name for some of these geographical locations, like Avery mentioned Haran for Quran. Um, but that's just the difference in there's the Greek Septuagint and that's what the KJV is based off of. And, and, uh, Stephen quoting that version. And then you have the original Hebrew version of these names. All right. Uh, has anybody Real else quick. got a favorite thing about Abraham? Yeah, I do. So right in the middle of all that, you guys have been laying the foundation super well. So just as you said, Abraham got this call from the Lord. And I think it's interesting. Stephen even points this out in verses two and three. It says that, he received that call from the Lord. The glory of God appeared unto our father Abraham um, when he was in Mesopotamia before he went to Quran, right? And so just as you said, he got that call a while ago, and then he moved with his father to the land of barrenness, delayed with him until he died. 
But the story gets really, really cool right after that. And that's what I want to talk about just for a second, because I went back and I would suggest anybody, right? It's it's hard to to get the full depth just by reading Stephen. You really can't. He's citing it to people who'd memorized the whole story. So go back. It's in Genesis starting in chapter 12. You can even go back a little bit further if you wanted to catch the, the Babel in 11, right? And see where the tribes went from Babel. But whenever Abraham really picks up, it's at the beginning of Genesis chapter 12. He goes there. He finally leaves uh, Ur of the Chaldees. He's going over uh, to where God had actually called him to. And he takes Lot with him. Now, we mentioned his father that he took with him, who was of his father's house. Obviously, his father was of his father's house. But Lot was also of his father's house. Lot also was not part of the people that God told him to take with him. And we'll see, if you read that story, that Lot comes into a lot of trouble and causes Abraham a lot of, of problems. But one of the coolest problems that happens to Abraham, and I'll, I'll make this super brief because you got to go read it for yourself. But right after uh, Lot and Abraham start hanging out a bit, they both get really rich. God blesses them. Their flocks are growing. And Abraham's like, hey, Lot, you know, we can't live so close together because we have so much sheep. You know, the sheep can't get enough to drink when we're hanging out close. And so Lot goes over and he pitches his tent towards Sodom. This is in uh, Genesis chapter 13 and 14. And immediately Sodom gets attacked by these five other kings. And so Sodom groups up with Gomorrah and a couple other kings. So there's this huge battle of kings. And Sodom and Gomorrah get trounced and they're run out with all the the folks that were with them. and, And Lot gets captured. Well, Abraham hears about it, and literally, so we have we have five kings fighting six kings, one of whose name is title king of nations. Like, how awesome is that? Anyway, but we've got all these kings, hundreds of people at least. It doesn't give us numbers exactly, but 11 different kingdoms are fighting each other. One of them wins, or one of the, the halves win and takes Lot and runs off, and Abraham's like, hey, that's my friend. And so Abraham gets his servants together from his own household, one man with one household of servants. He goes after them, and he trounces them all in the night. God gives him great victory. He doesn't kill them all. He just steals everything that they had pretty much and takes all their captives back. And as he's returning, he runs into Melchizedek, which is one of the craziest characters in the Old Testament as far as I'm concerned. I really don't know what you could even say about that. But he's mentioned in Hebrews, and Hebrews was one of the first things I memorized as a Bible quizzer, so I thought it was really great. Um, but anyway, he runs into Melchizedek, gives this tithe thing, and then gets a lot back. And it's anyway, But it's crazy. So as soon as he... Uh, as soon as he starts to do stuff, just like you were saying, Brother Melder, whenever, you know, your faith actually has something behind it, God starts blessing him amazingly. And he beats all these kings, brings them back. And anyway, it's just a really, really cool story. So I suggest you go and read that. Yeah, one of the most interesting names in the Old Testament is the name of one of those kings, Keto Laomer. Yes. So pretty, try that one in a spelling bee. <laughs> <laughs> A- Avery, uh, Eric is Eric is getting married soon, and that's probably on the top of his of his list for Eric Jr. Right? Yeah, <laughs> that's that's running for sure. No, I was gonna say um, in this passage, brother uh, Nave actually from Philip and Avery's church has been doing a phenomenal uh, series, I believe, on Wednesday night, talking about the will of God, and he's been hitting some some great points on the life of Abraham, and I like what he said. Um, talking about the call of God in verse three here, whenever it's uh, God told Abraham, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and come into the land, which I shall show thee, you know, at that point he was just asking Abraham to begin walking. He didn't know Abraham didn't know the full extent of what God was calling him to do. He just wanted him to make the first step. And I think that that's, you know, a very good application to our lives and applying the will of God to our lives that sometimes if God showed you the full picture, right, of what he wanted you to do for the kingdom of God, you might run away and be scared and not want to ever take that first step. But I think God purposefully sometimes hides, 
right, the full picture from us so that we can just begin our walk in faith and step into the doors that God's calling us to do. And sometimes, like Abraham, right, we're not always faithful. We might take our father along with us and dwell in Haran too long. But I still think that we can call Abraham the father of the faithful because he continued to grow, right, in faith and obedience. And I think that's kind of why Stephen's placing that story in here for um, for the Sanhedrin to hear, right? Listen, you get a lot of things right. You know, you've memorized the law, you're scholars of the law. I'm just asking you to take that next step in faith and obedience. And I would say that's what our message is to a lot of Christians today who just think that, well, all I need to do is have a cognitive belief in Jesus as Lord. And we're saying, we just want you to take that next step in faith and grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as Second Peter 3.18 instructs us, and be baptized and take on the name of Jesus Christ and, and uh, receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And also, uh, Jonathan, you brought up how Abraham, the, uh, the place, the city that, uh, or just the region that God was calling him out of was Ur of the Chaldees, right? Which we would see later would become the nation of Babylon, the empire of Babylon. And, you know, me and Eric were talking about this earlier today. Babylon in its most general sense, especially towards the, uh, the end of days in Revelation, it represents rebellion against God, rebellion against the law of God, against um, the nature of character of God. And God was essentially calling Abraham out of this rebellious nation saying, come out from among those people, be separate, be holy, Phil, be obedient, you know, cause Bab- Babylon was bred out of people that were rebell- rebellious against the judgment, the, um, essentially just the nature of God and God's plan. But God was calling Abraham out of this lifestyle. And really we see this whole element throughout scripture of God calling people out of that spirit of Babylon. And in a way, Stephen could kind of be using this to kind of poke at the Sanhedrin a little bit. He's like, we're supposed to be separate from these people, but some of you are actually kind of playing political cahoots with the Romans, you know, the same, that same spirit of Babylon, this oppressive spirit and enslaving spirit it's in Rome and you guys are doing business with them, you know, come out from among them and be separate. Like, our forefather Abraham was originally called to be. Amen. That's that was well put. I was going to, I want to add one, well, maybe two things. I don't know. Um, I was going to add, um, it's interesting to note that you could make the argument that God in this moment is making a relational, he's making a relationship with Abraham and trying to draw Abraham to God. And it's interesting that Stephen brings this up because he brings out he brings up the call of Abraham, right? And that call of Abraham was the first step into a relationship that Abraham had with God. And could it be that Stephen, knowing the lack of relationship that the Sanhedrin had with the things of God, they had all of the necessary religious relationships, they had the necessary requirements to have a relationship with God. They did all the, the right all things. the traditions. Exactly, but they didn't have the heart. They didn't have the heart to come out from the land of the Chaldees. They didn't have the heart to come out of sin. And that, the, when you said that, Ava, it's what I thought. It was as if God was calling Abraham out of sin, much like God is calling all of us out of sin when he's given us these steps, the necessary steps of salvation. That is our step out of, or that's our call to come out of sin. Come out of where you live. Come out of your flesh and live with me in 
in anointing, live with me in eternity. And it, it, it was interesting when y'all were speaking that that thought came to my mind. Stephen, in a way, also making a, pro, a proclamation or a, a, an invitation to the Sanhedrin. Look, have a relationship. You have a relationship. All of this stuff becomes, becomes good. It, it's no longer in vain what you were doing because your heart's not in it. It all of a sudden becomes necessary. It becomes, um, it becomes a part of your walk with God and your relationship. Which one of the biggest things that the one of the biggest revelations that God gave Abraham kind of when he was he was past Haran, you know, he was past the delay, and God appears to Abraham after a little while again, and is like, Abraham, I am your exceeding great reward, mm-hmm. you know. So Logan, to your point. Another reason why Stephen could be bringing this up is because the Sanhedrin lost sight of what their exceeding great reward was. They valued the tradition. They valued, you know, maintaining the religious order, if you want to put it that way. But they lost sight of God. They lost sight of what their exceeding great reward was. You know, and if we're not careful, we could fall in love with the tradition, fall in love with the the worship service, the preaching, the all the traditions, which traditions aren't bad, but we need to keep the main thing the main thing. You know, fall in love with God and make him the exceeding great reward. Absolutely. It's a great, great place to pick on up on verse nine. All right. All right. Uh, My next passage will will be verses nine through 16. And verse nine reads, And the patriarchs moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him. Patriarchs referring to Joseph's uh, brothers um, in the story where Joseph is, uh, his coat of many colors is stripped off of him. He's thrown into a pit, sold off into slavery. Um, and verse 10 picks up and delivered him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now there came a dearth over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, referring to there was a famine and great affliction. Or I'm sorry. And there came a dearth of famine over all the land of Egypt and Canaan and great affliction. And our fathers found no sustenance referring to the patriarchs, um, family of Joseph. Um, there was no way of making money. There was no food. And verse 12 reads, but when Jacob heard that there was corn in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And at the second time, Joseph was made known to his brethren and Joseph's kindred was made known unto Pharaoh. Then sent Joseph and called his father, Jacob to him and all his kindred, three score and 15 souls. So Jacob went down into Egypt and died. He and our fathers and were carried over into Sichem or Sychem, Sychem, and laid in the sepulcher that Abraham bought for a sum of money of the sons of Emor, the father of Sychem. Um, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. If I'm not, I am so sorry. Um, I don't have a study guide on me, so if one of y'all could correct me. <laughs> you nailed it. Sychem. Oh, let's yeah. go. Let's Sikhem. go. Yep. Um, but yeah, no, uh, Stephen is now giving the history of um, Jacob and Joseph's brothers and the life of Joseph, um, the famine that happened in all of the land. And Joseph was raised up for such a time as that to um, save the grain that was given for those seven years um, to where they could provide for all of those that would be needing, um, that would need the sustenance. And I'll open up the floor to anyone who has anything to speak on verses nine through 16. My, one of the things that has always kind of perplexed me about the story of Joseph, I think, I think the story of Joseph is, I think he's, he may be my favorite character in the Old Testament. I, he's just so 
pure hearted and everything goes wrong in his life and he stays faithful and true and he had every reason to rationalize his way into stopping following God, right? His family betrayed him. His everything just went wrong. Um I and I, it's just a beautiful story. It's an amazing character. I love it. And it's so interesting. It's, it feels like most of the big characters in the Old Testament are in the bloodline of Jesus. But he's not. And that's always I don't I've never really dove into why and really thought about it, but it's always kind of perplexed me that he wasn't in the lineage. I don't know if anyone wants to add to that or if we just leave that hanging. Some there. of some of Joseph's descendants actually were played a big part in the trouble of Israel. Um particularly one part that I'm in with Isaiah, I believe it was the tribe of Ephraim that uh uh united with Assyria or something like that. But um yeah, that was just a that was for free. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I think while Joseph might not be in the physical lineage of Jesus, Stephen's definitely making a spiritual connection from Joseph to Jesus in this story. Cause he's saying in the, they're kind of reading between the lines of what Stephen's saying here is just like Joseph, right. Was betrayed by his brethren, right. Whenever he didn't do anything wrong, the call of God was on his life. And the same way, Jesus, you, his brethren uh, have the Jews have betrayed Jesus whenever he's done nothing wrong. Right. And he's, He's got who he is, who God's calling for for our generation, right? For you. Yeah, Eric, that's such a good point. And I think to riff on the idea of prophecy here, um, back in verse nine, and I love this phrase, you know, the patriarchs moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt, and then it adds on, but God was with him. And I think that's not just an encouragement phrase. It actually points us back to uh, whenever God told Abraham the same thing, he said, your children will go to this other nation for the period of four generations, and then I will bring them out richer than they were before. He prophesied that to Abraham, uh, which who's Abraham, the great, great father, great, great grandfather, if I could speak of Joseph. So God had this in hand for a very long time. And when he says, but God was with him, I think he's pointing back, just as you said, to the prophecy that God has been working this whole thing the whole time. It's in his hand. He's using his words to fulfill his words. And just like in fact, I'm just thinking off the top of my head, I don't even know an earlier prophecy that was fulfilled than God telling Abraham, your children will go here for four generations and then I will bring them out. And that's exactly what we see happening. And he chooses to do it by Joseph, right? I agree, Phil. I think um, Joseph is one of my favorite characters. Just, I mean, for the uh, for the business side that he works out uh, being in charge of a whole country, that's really impressive. But also just as you were saying, he's got a pure heart. He keeps getting thrown into horrible situations. And just by saying what's true and running away from evil, he gets out of really bad circumstances. And that's all that we can do, right? Tell the truth and run from evil and then uh, do well whenever something's been put in your hands, right? Faithful with a little, you will be made uh, ruler over much. I think he's a perfect example of that. But in that, he's one of the earliest uh, fulfilled prophecies. And that is, again, the heartbeat of what Stephen's talking about here. God has always fulfilled his word. He fulfilled it here. He told Abraham, and then he goes on and he's doing this. And he's calling Israel out according to his master plan, which is uh, not culminated exactly, but it's it's been building up to Jesus for a, a long, long time. So good. One of my favorite blurbs in this whole passage is pretty insignificant if you're just reading it. And it's the little part at the end of verse 16, whenever it says that um, 
Jacob was laid in the sepulcher that Abraham bought for a sum of money of the sons of Emor, the father of Sakim. And, you know, if you look at the Old Testament, I think me and Avery and Logan had discussed this whenever we talked about our, our Genesis study. Abraham only bought a burial plot of the land that God had promised him, right? He said, I'm going to promise you all of this land. And all he ever saw of it was one burial plot. All right. <laughs> so imagine, right? God's calling you, right? And you don't ever get to see the fulfillment of what God's calling you to do. But the impact of you stepping out in faith is going to impact generations after. And I think this is really prophetic, right? For the life of Stephen, because in the same way, right, that Abraham never saw the fulfillment of his ministry and of his walk with God, Stephen never saw the fulfillment of his sermon in Acts chapter 7, right? He dies at the end of the chapter, but we'll see in Acts chapter 8, because of Stephen's death, right, the, the gospel, the Jews, the, the Jewish believers, they had to scatter to all of the different parts of the earth, right? And because of, of Stephen's persecution, the gospel could then spread to all the different known parts of the earth. And Acts chapter one, verse eight could be fulfilled, right? Samaria, Judea to the uttermost part of the earth. So I think that without even knowing it, right? Stephen's prophesying his own ministry by using the example of Abraham. Is there not even a verse in this uh, chapter? I can't remember if it's talking about Abraham or Moses or uh, one of those guys, but he says the very ground that you are standing on is because of these guys' faithfulness, you know? And really the only reason the Sanhedrin is standing where they're at was because Abraham bought that one burial plot, you know? So it's cool. It's cool. But one thing that one, uh, one dynamic that I have always found super interesting about the story of Joseph is the fact that he went into Egypt it was it was appointed for God later. We know with Moses, you know, every time we think of Egypt, you know, like ah, oh, you know, they were uh, they enslaved the Israelites, and God had to deliver the Israelites out of their hands. But there was actually a time that God sent the Israelites into Egypt for refuge. True, you know. And what that reminds me of is there are places where God will take us that will be our refuge for a time, that will be our rest for a time. But there is going to be a time where God calls us to get out of that place and to go to further on to what he's promised. So, I mean, you could argue that a lot of people have that just in the growth in scripture. I mean, who knows? Haran could have been that for Abraham, you know, his little destination spot here or there where he could find rest for a little while. But then God had to further call him out into other promises. And I don't know, but this is where... You know, this is the beginning of and Moses. You know, he's regarded as many as one of as the greatest prophet in the in the Old Testament. This is the setup to his story. You know, but I I love seeing Joseph and ooh, I just thought about this. There is an interesting dynamic and parallel about a dreamer being in a strange land in the Old Testament. We see it with Joseph. He's the dreamer. He's the interpreter of these dreams, but he's in a land that is foreign to him. He's in a pagan land where these people do not serve his God. But we also see that with Daniel and Babylon, where he is, uh, I don't think he has any dreams himself, but he, he, God reveals the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream to him. And again, in a land that's pagan, a land that is foreign to him, and in a, in a land that, like we said, Babylon is against his God in almost every way you can imagine. So, I feel like this illustrates the point that if you are in the will of God, even when you are in a strange land, 
when you are in a interesting place and a pagan place, if you want to put that put it that way, if you're a person of God, you're going to stand out. You're going to you should be the best of the best. You know, you should be the one that's performing the greatest, not because you're something special, but because of the God that you serve. Amen. You know? So I just love that parallel between Joseph and Daniel. I think that's awesome. And we might say just a little bit more on that later, but I, while you were saying that Avery, I think a perfect example is anybody who's a quizzer right now who has a job or is in college, right? You got to use anything that God gives you as a platform for his purpose, right? Um, anyway, I've seen many, many quizzers do excellent things, quizzing in, in the world, but not of the world. Mm -hmm. Amen. All right. All right. Moving on. Let's go. All right. Uh, the next passage will be verses 17 through 22. And the Bible reads, verse 17, But when the time of the promise drew nigh, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, till another king arose which knew not Joseph. The same dealt subtly with our kindred, and evil entreated our fathers, so that they cast out their young children to the end they might not live. In which time Moses was born and was exceeding fair and nourished up in his father's house three months. And when he was cast out, Pharaoh's, da Pharaoh's daughter took him up and nourished him for her own son. And Moses was learned on, and Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and in deeds. So now Stephen's, of course, discussing the um, slavery that the Hebrew children had to endure uh, from the nation of, of Egypt. Um, there's a new king that arose that came and defeated the Egyptian empire, took over, and basically did not care about Jacob or Joseph or any of the, the patriarchs, um, and instead saw these people and was like, oh, I can use these for labor. I can use these people for all sorts of other th of slavery jobs that they could, get a, they could use them for um, and treat them unfairly uh, for, the for the benefit of his kingdom. And um, this is where now the um, prophecy of enduring slavery that God gave to Abraham uh, being fulfilled. Um, I'll open the floor up to anyone who has any comments um, about this, this passage now. Who wants to go? Yeah, I feel like, um, I feel like again, kind of like how I com uh, compared Joseph to Jesus, right? Stephen's doing the same thing with Moses now. Right. Whenever he says that um, in verse, is it uh, verse number twenty-two? Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and in deeds. You could yeah. just simply replace the name Moses with Jesus, and it it would fit the same description. You know, Luke two verse fifty-two says, "And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature." and in favor with God and man, you know, obviously Stephen's connecting in each one of these stories, right? The, the person of Jesus Christ in each one of these patriarchs to show at the end, right? He's going to, he's really setting 40 verses, right? To set the, the foundation and the framework. And he's going to hit them with the nail in the coffin, right? At the end of the chapter and say, you're all those people, right? Who denied all of our, all of our patriarchs. And you're the same ones, just like they, accused Moses and Jacob and, and betrayed them who, who were doing it to Jesus. In case the irony is lost on anyone, I think it's funny just coming from, you know, America in the time that we're at, it's Jesus was a Jew who grew up in Africa speaking Hebrew and Greek, right? This is a totally different context. And again, I mean, we, we talk about context a lot, but um, there are 
are many, many years between now and then. And so anytime you can go back and you can look at the cultures or go back, and I seriously suggest go back and read the story of Moses, right? It's in Exodus chapter two. Uh, and then it actually lasts a really long time. You don't have to maybe read all of Exodus, uh, but get that context because God is working not only for us now, but in the context of the world that he had set up back then. And um, anyway, just as Logan was saying, when you read through and a new house comes over and, and leads the people of, of Egypt, right? Those huge changes going on and so many other nations are involved. Um, it's not just as simple as, as just reading the, the highlights of the story. And there's much, much depth in the Bible. That's right. Yeah. All right. Uh, um, one thing that I think that is interesting to note is Mo Moses, when he lived in his father's house, was taught the ways of the Hebrew, of the Hebrew people, right? Um, his mother, and as we draw on our knowledge of Genesis and the story of Moses, um, Moses, when you know his mother had. I hate to say this word, but bargained with the Egyptian, uh, with Pharaoh's daughter. Um, and Moses got to live in, uh, with his mother for a time before he went to live at the Egyptian palace. Um, he was taught the ways of the Hebrew people. He was taught their doctrine. He was taught everything that they taught their own children to where now he goes to the Egyptian palace and Moses was learned in all of the ways of Egypt and Egypt at this point in time was the, they were the empire. They were the place to be. They were the most knowledgeable. They were the most intelligent. Um, and he had all of these, he, he went to school every day. If we want to say that he had knowledge of math, he had knowledge of geometry. He had knowledge of all of this stuff that Egypt could offer as well as being a general in the armies. Um, and in the, Throughout history, we can find that he was actually he was part of uh, the armies that defeated the Ethiopians who had invaded Egypt. Um, but what I wanted to note was everything that Egypt that Egypt taught him through. I I don't know the exact year that he went to the palace, but everything that Egypt taught him, which I would assume was a longer period of time than what he was at home, none of that paid off. If we want to use that terminology. None of that worked. God still orchestrated Moses's life, as we'll find in the next passage. Well, if you also notice too, Logan, on that point, uh, Moses spends a full 40 years in Pharaoh's household. Okay. And after that, he spends just as much time in the desert. Basically, I mean... I feel like, and I don't know necessarily the theological implications of this, but it could be that whatever whatever of Egypt got into Moses, God removed that in the desert, in the wilderness. So, And that, we got some parallels of that with 40 is huge in the Bible, guys. 40 is a big number. Uh, Moses spends 40 years in the desert, which could also be looked at as preparation for him to lead the Israelites for 40 years in the desert. And Jesus, seeing the Israelites do it wrong in the desert for 40 years, then fast for 40 days to get it right. So, oh, so good. <laughs> but Logan, to your point about uh, this king, this pharaoh that um, the Bible just says right here that he comes to power. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't remember Joseph. He um, doesn't honor the Israelites. If anything, he wants to make them slaves. He's, I believe Exodus uh, even alludes to the fact that he is threatened by them. He sees their number is so great. If they 
at any time, if they decide to rise up against us Egyptians, they could win because their number is so great. So let's Which break that them. Thought is, that thought is crazy to think of as well, because if Egypt is so powerful at this time, and they're the, they're the empire of empires, how is a king so threatened by a group of random people? Well, families... It- yeah, ahead, yeah. What's in, what I was just going to say, adding on to that, what's interesting is throughout the entire first part of Exodus, the Hebrews are looked at as slaves, but as soon as they come out of Egypt, Exodus, uh, Moses refers to them as an army that comes yeah. out of Egypt. So this people was power. This people was a very powerful group of people. It was God's chosen people, but Egypt, they basically listened to the image that Egypt um, projected onto them. Yeah. But, um, what I find interesting too is the whole idea of um, God letting this Pharaoh come into power. We see later when uh, Stephen doesn't really touch on it much, but um, we know the 10 plagues and all of that that happens. And we might touch on this a little bit next week or on the next episode. But when all these plagues are going down and Pharaoh continues to harden his heart and not let the Egyptians go, there's one encounter where God says, okay, Moses, I want you to go and tell this to Pharaoh. Give, give him a message for me. You know, Pass this note to him and see what he says. Um, but God tells Pharaoh, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Do you not realize that the reason, the only reason why I let you come to power was so that my glory could be shown in the earth and so that my name could be proclaimed to everybody and so that Egypt may know that I am the one true God. And again, I find it interesting that uh, Stephen is telling Moses' story to the Sanhedrin, because in a way, we see a similar thing. The Sanhedrin, who we could argue was a bit of a tyrannical religious group, you know, they ruled the religious world with an iron fist, and anybody that went against them, you know, they killed. And we see that with Jesus, you know, but we kind of see Steve, uh, Stephen saying, okay, the only reason you guys have even come to this part. Uh, to power in this day and age was so that Jesus's name could be proclaimed throughout all the earth. And so that everybody could know that he is the one true God. And um, we obviously see that that part of his message resonates with them because they ended up killing Stephen too. (laughs) So you you say that, and that's why the whole law was created. It was created to point to Yahweh. It was created to point to Jesus And when the law became a weapon for the people of Israel or for the nation, and when it became a weapon that they used against everyone else, Jesus then comes up onto the scene and is saying, look, this is not what was envisioned. This is not what God intended. This is not what God wanted. I am the fulfillment of the law. And then we see in Galatians where um, Paul talks about the law not being a, or the law. I'm going to have to pull it up because I can't quote it off the top of my head. Um, chapter three, verse 24, uh, I'm sure Eric could quote it for us. Um, <laughs> oh my word. That's going to bring the Lord 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 us into Christ. Yeah. <laughs> Jinx. Uh, Somebody Logan, quote I was it. thinking about Galatians three earlier. Sorry, go ahead. So Jonathan, will you quote it clearly, please? Oh, I just had the beginning. Um, let me see if I can finish it now. Uh, wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be Justified by faith. Yeah. By faith. Thank you, Eric. There you go. Buried, bear one another's burdens. And, Amen. And then, in verse, and then verse 25 says, but after that faith has come, we are no longer, no longer under a schoolmaster. So 
Jesus, when he comes onto the scene, he alleviates the need for a weaponized law, right? Mm. He alleviates the, dare I say, the power of the Sanhedrin. He takes away all of the religious sect, their power. He takes away the ability that they have to um, attack people, to make them feel as if they're not worthy enough. All of that, all of that is gone. And the Sanhedrin is still gripping onto this tradition of this is how it has to be done. This is what has to be the case. This is why this is what our forefathers did. This is what we're supposed to do. All of this. And I lost my train of thought. Um, <laughs> oh, it's all right. Yeah, goodness. While you catch that, <laughs> um, while you catch that, um, is there anything else that uh, did anyone wanted to get in before we move on to the next part? I'm gonna let I'm gonna let Logan find it, but I'm you know it. this isn't um, the first time that Jesus is ever compared to Moses in Scripture, and if you look at Hebrews chapter three, the author does a a great argument, right, comparing Moses and the people of Israel in the in the wilderness to Jesus and his message. And he starts off the passage talking about how Moses was a servant, right? In his house, he had his ministry and the household of God, but Jesus is the son over the house. And then he goes on and later on in the chapter. And he says, if all those people right in the wilderness, they died because they hardened their hearts after the spirit of God. If we don't right obey the spirit by faith, how much greater is the punishment that we should expect. And so there's, there's a lot of, you know, the, the Hebrew scriptures, as I mentioned, it's the baseline for a lot of these biblical authors comparisons and how they view Jesus. And, and to them, right. It, it put more weight on Jesus's message. If all of these people in the old Testament, right. They saw miracles, their message was powerful and there were, there were great exploits done. Then we should expect even greater things from the message of Jesus. And there's even really, frankly, there's greater stakes if we don't obey the message of Jesus in the new Testament. Right. That's really good. Logan. I still can't find it. I'm sure it'll come up <laughs> later on in the, in the episode. I'll think of it. And I'll be like, that's what I was going to say. Um, <laughs> but no until then, if, if, if anyone else has anything else to add, uh, we could go ahead and move on to the next passage. All right, let's go. All right. Um, next passage will be verses 23 through 28. <clears throat> Verse 23 reads, And when he was full 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him that was opposed and smote the Egyptian. So For he was Sorry. Say that again? You said opposed. It's oppressed. Sorry. Just My bad. You're right. Sorry. Thank you. Suppressed smote and smote the Egyptian, for he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them, but they understood not. And the next day he showed himself unto them as they strove, and would have set them at one again, saying, Sirs, ye are brethren, why do ye wrong one to another? But he that did his neighbor wrong thrust him away, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge over us? Wilt thou kill me as thou didst the Egyptian yesterday? And so here we see Moses, he has this. I want to say dream. It wasn't a physical dream, but he has this dream of reconnecting with his brothers and sisters, um, the, the, the Hebrew nation, the Hebrew people. And so he tries to do it and gets mad and operates in his anger and smotes an Egyptian to where now he creates questions in the Hebrew, in the Hebrew minds and in the Hebrew people of 
well, what are you going to do to us now? Like you've been living with the Egyptians all this time and now you just killed them. Now you want to say you're one of us. What are you going to do? Kill us too? And I, I think, and then we start to see the shift in Moses and his descent, his descent into um, the wilderness. And I'll, I'll open it up for any comments that any, anyone else has on this uh, passage. I think this is really similar to the little bit of a hitch at the start that we see with Abraham, actually, because God gives him the call. He says, to, you know, come out. And then he doesn't. He hangs out with his father and his uh, his nephew. And similarly here, Moses has finally got the idea, you know, I really should connect back with my people. And the way that he does it is through anger and murder. And that's <laughs> really not the best way to go. I was reminded of James chapter one. Um, I guess it's 19 and 20. Wherefore, my beloved brethren be... Let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. So Moses comes back with a lot of wrath, which, anyway, you, you take this, talk about how when people grow up, you know, away from their parents and in a foreign land uh, with all this pagan stuff, it's hard when, when he grew up in a what would be a very broken home. Uh, I assume that there is a lot of wrath that's pent up. You know, I wasn't with my with my family. I was over here. I don't know what my identity is. I'm stuck between these two cultures, all this stuff. Right. And I have to do all the, the schoolwork that Logan was talking about earlier at, uh, you know, the best university in Egypt. Um, but he comes back and he just, he's swinging, uh, when he comes back and he kills a guy and that's not the effective way to go. Um, but you see that God is, is even going to be able to bring that in and work his purpose. I just, I thought it was interesting, right? When we try to do things of our own ability, when we lean on our own understanding, Right. As we we talked about, Moses was a general, right? He he knows war probably just to a great degree. And he comes in and does the Moses thing, right? Just as we see Peter coming in and doing the Peter thing over and over again. But that's not what God wanted. And then, um, and this is way in the future, but God redeems even that part of us, right? And Peter comes back and he's a super strong witness. And Moses come back and Moses is an incredible speaker, even though he says he's not, right? Multiple times he doesn't want to talk to Pharaoh, but... God takes that, you know, a bit of an impetuous attitude and, and uh, he mellows him out over 40 years of, of being a shepherd in the wilderness, which I think is funny, right? Just as far as like resumes go, highly trained in Egypt, um, seeking shepherd position. <laughs> uh, anyway, but God, God brought him all way, way back down, put him on his own level, said, hey, you know, you've got to go back and trust in me. I'm going to give you this cool staff. It's going to turn into a serpent. You listen, you say what I say. And he brought him back and he, he set him straight. But anyway. All that to say, don't go in on, on your own understanding, but also be ready for God to transform that understanding to use for his purpose when he, he and you get on the same page. Right. Amen. Yeah. I feel like there's this in the Old Testament, yeah, ever, ever since the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, you, there's this promise, right, of the Messiah that, that God mm -hmm. gave Eve and Adam. And you could almost see them even whenever they have Seth, right, right after the fall they're expecting, all right, is this the person? Right. And there's this kind of like frustration of like, this person is doing really good. And then they fall, they have this big collapse and you kind of see that frustration with Moses. You know, he's done all these great things. He's forsaken Egypt. He's going back to his people. And I think, I think Stephen's kind of putting that humanity right into his sermon a little bit, but I think he's, he's saying, right. And all those those ways where Moses was good, Jesus was better, right? And in those ways where Moses fell, Jesus made up the difference. If you look at this passage, he says that he came to visit his brethren, right? Philippians chapter two, Jesus 
made himself of no reputation. He took upon him the form of a servant and he was made in the likeness of men, right? He came to visit us in, in our humanity. He didn't just stay on his throne in heaven, but he took on flesh to become our savior. And while, you know, he, he did and in, in uh, Acts chapter 10 says this, that he healed all that was oppressed of the devil, just like Moses was seeking to defend the oppressed in this situation, he didn't do it by anger, right? He didn't do it with a sledgehammer and come in and try to destroy the, the Roman Empire. He came in by being a suffering servant, right? And to seek and to save that which was lost while still healing all those that were oppressed of the devil. And then um, if you continue on, right, he says that um, he, I think we, have, we haven't stopped yet on verse 25, right? We stopped in verse 25 or 28. I'm sorry. 28. Yeah, 28. Yeah, how he defended right this this uh, this or this um, brother that one of his brothers against the Egyptian, right? Just like Jesus, he leaves the ninety and nine to follow after the one, right? Who's who's lost and who needs who needs defending? So in all these situations, right? Jesus is the better Moses, and Stephen's using the fragile Moses to be able to portray the better Jesus. Mm-hmm. And from a practical standpoint. Uh, when looking at uh, this encounter with Moses and the Egyptian, uh, the quickest way to kill your ministry or to kill your uh, image or your uh, report with people, do what Moses did. Because <laughs> he, uh, I feel like conflict and how you respond to conflict could either make or break your uh, ministry in a sense, because Moses lashing out in physical uh, violence, he Number one, the people that he was supposed to be leading saw that and it kind of jaded their mindset towards Moses, but also towards conflict with each other. And um, and ultimately that led to Moses not really being effective and leading those people until 40 years later. So that in and of itself could delay your ability in uh, ministering and leading. So I'd say just from a practical standpoint, Moses... Uh, I find it so funny that too, because Moses just killed a guy, and then the next day he goes and sees these guys fighting. He's like, "Guys, calm down, just work it out peacefully, please." And part of me is like, "I'm with the other guys." We're like, "What are you talking about, man? You just killed a guy yesterday." <laughs> but uh, so, don't be like Moses in the fact where you, Jonathan, like you said, where you just lash out and you approach conflict in a very hostile way. But also don't be like the guys and responding to Moses, like, who are you to judge me? You know, if you, you know, we're all in a way flawed in this, um, in Moses this walk was, with God. Moses was right. What he said. He was, he was, Moses was right, you know, but, um, his approach, it's a whole practice, what you preach mentality, yeah. you know, so his character didn't match up with his recommendation. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which he looked like a hypocrite. Which we could relate that back to how many times did Jesus call the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin hypocrites? One to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. So Stephen is just throwing jabs, like little jabs. I mean, you could literally put like copy and paste what he that did his neighbor wrong said in verse 28, who made you a a ruler and a judge over us, right? The Sanhedrins would say that same thing to Jesus. Who are you to tell us? Right, what the Old Testament means, or who are you to say destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up? Yeah, he's he's putting these things in there on purpose to point it back to the Sanhedrin. That's really good. Mm. All right, 
All right, you want to keep going, or you want to stay here? Go, go ahead, Avery. No, I was just going to say, to your point, Jonathan Moses wasn't. Uh, you said Moses isn't a great speaker, or Moses said that he wasn't a great speaker. Moses popped off a few times, <laughs> and Stephen's popping off right now. So, well, he even says in uh, what verse was that? He was mighty in words. Um, what's that? At? Yeah, My, yeah, mighty in words and in deeds, which. That brings up a whole point in and of itself, because how many times just when we are faced with a hard task, do we automatically disqualify ourselves when not only will God make up the ability that we don't have, but we have the ability sometimes, but we just look at ourselves like we don't. So don't, and I'm pretty sure we've said this before on this podcast, but don't disqualify yourself from something that God has called you to do just because you're scared, just because you're nervous, you're worried about how other people are going to receive it. You know, God will make a way. It's, the spirit will give you the words in the hour. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I I wanted to say um, in regards to the Moses telling God he couldn't, or we say, or Moses arguing with God that um, he wouldn't, it wouldn't be effective him what God was calling him to do. Mo- Moses's issue that he had was he didn't think that the people of Israel would believe in him or they would listen to him. And so he comes up with these excuses to God. Look, I can't speak. I can't do this. I can't do that. Blah, blah. And it's like God's looking at Moses being like, dude, come on. Like, I, like, everything that you did in Egypt was for this moment. And you won't see it because of your experience that you had that Stephen talks about right here. You're so caught up on your mistake. Oh, you're so caught up on your mistake that you can't see what I'm calling you to be. And God gives Moses one of the best responses I've ever heard. Like, it's probably one of my favorite lines in the Bible, but Moses is going through all these excuses, like you were saying, Logan. And God just looks at Moses and goes, who made man's mouth? Who made the blind and the deaf? Who even made these people with all their deficiencies? Did not I? You know, he's like, I made your mouth. I can use your mouth. So stop being a pansy and let me use your mouth, would you? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, I, I would say the thing that comes to my mind that that most people disqualify themselves for is the ability to teach and share the word. And I just I I would encourage everyone that if you're not comfortable teaching a Bible study and you don't feel like you're qualified, if you're a Bible quizzer and you learn the word, you're qualified to teach a Bible study. You have the ability. Yes, there are so 100%. many resources that if you. If you don't know where to start, there are so many resources that can help you start. Um, don't be like Moses and use an excuse. <laughs> right. And let me just say, like, the first message or the first Bible study that you speak or teach is going to be junk. <laughs> like, <laughs> if you just accept that and you say, you know what? Like, I'm trusting God. I'm going to do my best. And it's probably not going to be the best message I ever teach. But if you start somewhere, and you say, God, I'm giving this to you. You're going to look years down the road and you're going to say, wow, I started here. And by faith, I've gotten to this point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it could be junk in your eyes. I'll, I'll, just a quick story. My first one of my first P7 uh, lessons, I had one of the moms who was in my homeschool group say I did a great job. And I was like, that was horrible. Like, did you not have not heard my <laughs> pastor speak? And like how much these other sermons that I've heard in my life are so much better. And I was like, man, no, she hasn't like. That's the point. These people that you're speaking to haven't heard 
what's better. They might as well hear it from you and you'll just get better at it. And the Lord will work on them to let it be the right thing for them at the time. You just don't worry about it. From your point of view, yeah. that's not your, your problem. Your problem. And is maybe, just- maybe you can't, talk about the order of Melchizedek in Hebrews <laughs> chapter seven, but you can talk about Acts chapter two, verse 38. You know, whenever yeah. you're starting out, stick with the basics and God's eventually going to, going to promote you to maybe diving into some of the deeper things, but just teach a new convert, right? How to be saved and how to be a witness and how to read the Bible and how to fast and pray. Everyone needs to hear those daily disciplines. And so right. you got to start somewhere. And I think that's a good place to start. Mm-hmm. And even like all of these messages that we've seen in Acts up to this point, it's literally the main message has been Jesus is God. He's Lord in Christ and he died on the cross for all of our sins. So repent. Anybody right. can preach that. Anybody can teach that, you know? <laughs> Amen. It's, it's packaged in different ways, but at the mm-hmm. end of the day, that's where it all comes back to. Same message. Same message. Yep. I would, I would love to, um, I would love to see a, surplus of bible bible study teachers come out of our quiz program because like pastors are great evangelists are wonderful we need obviously we need those but i think we i think we um we are in need of more bible study teachers coming out of our young people and and our not even our young people literally everybody we we need people teaching bible study my my father is a is a home bible study teacher and has taught thousands and i think that is the most it's the most effective way to to bring in disciples to make disciples right they need to be taught they need to be led they need to be fed they need to be converted and then nurtured and then fed and then how better than having them in your home or in their home and teaching them the word of God and breaking bread and fellowshipping with them. So, mm-hmm. and that, and I think that is the key part about Bible studies. Sometimes it's not like, let me crank out the chart and you see this, this, right. this, this, but a lot of times it's like, Hey man, you want to go get coffee and just talk about the Bible, right. talk about God, you know, connect with people. We're called to make disciples. We're not called to necessarily make, um, we're not called to be rabbis and have all these students necessarily, but we're called to build relationships with these people right. and make friends in the kingdom of God. I always say the best Bible studies are one-on-one Bible studies mm-hmm. because that person, you can tailor whatever Bible study you're teaching to that one person's needs. They can ask questions in an informal format. So if there's one friend, you don't need like Avery saying, you don't need a whole a whole school to be able to have a Bible study. If one friend's hungry, take them out to Starbucks, take them out to eat and just have a conversation about the word. Don't even have anything prepared. Just say, hey, where's your walk with God at? What do you believe about salvation? And go from there. Yeah, there's just a like reason- a, oh, sorry, just like the best quiz, uh, just just like the best Bible studies one on one. The best quiz practice is one on one. Just my opinion. So anyway, <laughs> hey, my favorite, a, a lot of my favorite quiz practices were one on one practices with my coach. I'll yeah. never forget those. Um, well, one, I one hated being one on one with my coach. <laughs> um, one of the things I was going to add to Eric's point about teaching to. Um, teaching to the one um, in reference to the number of, you know, if even one person is hungry um, still matters there. There's a reason why um, in the parable, in the parable where Jesus is talking about um, the shepherd leaving the 99 for the one God cares about the one God doesn't always, isn't always concerned with the numbers and isn't always concerned with how many did I have at my P seven today? How many people, how many people were at my CMI today? The numbers, God's not in the numbers business. God's in the relationship business. If you draw one person to the Lord, 
that's going to be that that's going to mean to God the same way it would mean if you drew a hundred people to God. Don't be discouraged if you don't have a thousand people to speak to. Don't be discouraged if you don't even have five to speak to. If there's one person, like Eric said, that still matters. And that one person is hungry. Teach them a Bible study. Do what you can. Be a disciple maker. That's one of our commandments that God gave us. Go and make disciples. And I would say too, we're called to make disciples, not converts. You know, I think sometimes we think that, oh, they got the Holy Ghost, right? They spoke in tongues on Sunday. My job's done. No, your job has just begun. You know, after that, we need to teach these people, okay, what next? Because the what next is the biggest part of the Christian life, right? Getting the Holy Ghost is frankly the easy part, right? After yep. that, it's the life of holiness that we need to start teaching. And that's where the true disciple, the, the core root of disciple is discipline, right? That's where the, the discipline comes in is after they receive the Holy Ghost. Right. Just think about it. The New Testament says that we're born again, right? Birth, that'd be like a mom having a kid and then be like, all right, we're good. I'm done. <laughs> what do you mean? You still got to raise the whole kid, right? That's it, a whole, it's a rebirth. That's why we use that word. Yeah. My dad uses a phrase and it's kind of stark and it's kind of harsh, but kind of just letting these people come in, get the Holy Ghost, get baptized and just leaving them to their own devices. It's kind of like spiritual abortion because I mean, to put it more gently, you know, we could have an epidemic on our hands if we're not careful of winning souls, but not keeping souls. You know, we're in the soul keeping business, you know, as apostolics. So we really need to, just as much as we need outreach, as we value outreach, we need to value inreach too. Yeah, I was about to say, Brother Bernard kind of talks about outreach versus inreach. And inreach mm-hmm. goes, even that even that person in your youth group has been, been to church all their life, but they're not connected right? Mm-hmm. You need to connect. It's, it's your, it's your responsibility as Phil mentioned kind of jokingly earlier, but Galatians six says, bear one another's burdens, right? It is your responsibility to say, how can we get you connected? You know, how can we get you in, involved in a small group? How can we let you have fellowship with other believers? Right. That that's our responsibility as well. Which, and you never stop needing in reach. I need in reach. You need in reach, you know, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. You know, we constantly need to stay connected to the body and make sure we're doing okay because, you know, we all are not um, immune from sliding back. We're not all immune from, you know, being in a rough spot. We all need each other. Amen. One, one quick one quick comment that I'll have, and then we'll move on to the next statement or the next passage. But um, when we're talking about inReach, um, mainly I wanted to say, you know, you may feel as if you're not the leader per se. You may not feel as if you're the person that everyone looks at in your youth or in your hyphen group or in your church. Um, and that may cause you to think, you know, well, you know, I don't have that much of a say, just as Moses said in, in his argument with God, I don't know if they're going to listen to me. I don't know if they're going to do this or that. At, at the end of the day, all of us have relationships to someone. All of us have a friend. All of us have someone that we're connected to. And even if it's one person or two people, connecting and reaching out to them will make the difference for them rather than you thinking, you know, you may think that I I don't have that much of a say. I'm not that popular. I'm not this. I'm not that. Look, at the end of the day, if you can get one soul to heaven with you, that's what matters. If you can get two to heaven, that's, that's what matters. That's what we're in the business of. So I just encourage you, even if you think you may not be qualified, you may not be um, as 
you know, as outspoken or at the leader of the group or anything like that, you may be soft-spoken, you know, reach out to someone, reach out to your friends, encourage them, teach Bible studies, do what you do, what God has called you to do, be you. All right. If we're all ready to move on to the next passage, let's go ahead and move on. Um, this next passage will be 29 through 34, and this will be where we stop for this episode. Um, and the Bible reads in verse 29, Then fled Moses at this saying, and was a stranger in the land of Midian, where he begat two sons. And when forty years were expired, there appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai an angel of the Lord in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he wondered at the sight, and as he drew near to behold it, the voice of the Lord came unto him, saying, I am the God of thy fathers, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses trembled and durst not behold. And durst not behold. Then said the Lord to him, Put off thy shoes from thy feet, for the place where thou standest is holy ground. I have seen, I have seen the affliction of my people which is in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and am come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send thee to Egypt. And here we have the purpose of Moses. We have his call. We have his. Com- we have the command of the Lord go to Moses um, to go and deliver the people out of the land of Egypt. And Stephen is recapping this to the Sanhedrin. And now I'll open, I'll open it up to anyone else who has, um, who has something to add and contribute to this passage. I love the I word think... durst. I love the word durst again. I know <laughs> we brought that up before, but it's just a great word. Such a great word. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I just think, you know, it's cool seeing Moses is getting added into the lineage of those people that are called by God. You know, Abraham, the father of the faithful. And Isaac shall thy seed be called Jacob, who became Israel, who would be the name of the nation, literally. And then uh, Moses, who would be the prophet, the man, the Mosaic law. So it's cool. We're seeing Moses' purpose kind of come into fruition here. Yeah, I think, you know, Stephen's going to connect it more in the next verses after we're done here. But the same Moses, right, who they rejected, his brothers rejected in the previous verses is now going to be the same person that God's going to use, right, to go and deliver his people out of Egypt. And it kind of like Jesus, right, uh, Peter talked about a couple chapters ago, he quoted the Old Testament whenever he said the stone which the builders rejected, right, is now become the head of the corner. In the same way, right, the the fathers and even those that knew the law the best, right, those people who rejected Jesus, they're now going to be the ones, and, and Stephen's going to bring that connection for them, they're going to be the ones to see, right, that this is the person who God was talking about the whole time, the person of Jesus Christ. So um, I wanted to bring up, I think this is, is this also an example of names of regions being different because of the uh, Greek versus the Hebrew with, is it a Midian was made Median and then Sinai doesn't. I said it wrong. So differently. Right. Yeah. I mean, the Hebrew is Midian. Yeah. But then the Greek transliteration is Median. Yeah. So it's, uh, it is interesting. So, I mean, hopefully all the quizzers are, going back to the old Testament and, and, and reading like, like Jonathan recommended. So when you see those differences, don't get confused. It's just a translation. Difference, so. And then like in the next verse, Sina instead of Sinai. Yeah. Right. Same thing. Right. I messed okay. up. I'm sorry. 
<laughs> you're fine. No, no, no. You just you just said what you're you're used to. You're used to the Old Testament telling right. the story, um, which is perfectly understandable. I'm not so. gonna lie. This I didn't even I even when preparing, I didn't even see the sign apart. I always read it Sinai. I just naturally I put it there. You got I don't know to how while you're going through. I don't know how yeah. that would be ruled if you someone says Sinai. I feel like. I, I think know. if it's a if it's a just a regular question, it's essence. But I wouldn't try it in a quote. Right. Yeah. I would try it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. All right. Well, I know we've talked extensively about Moses already. Is there anything else? Um, yeah. I saw something interesting here, and I I just just saw it. So I I was trying to gather my thoughts on it. But when verse twenty nine says that Moses fled at this saying and was a stranger in the land of Medan, where he begat two sons, it just reminds me of the story back from from Exodus, and actually reminds me of circumcision. So we talked a little bit earlier in the chapter about how God gave circumcision to Abraham as a sign of the covenant that they were entering into. We talked, I guess, earlier in the podcast, maybe today as well, about how Colossians then says that baptism is a circumcision made without hands. And that is then how we enter into the New Testament. But it's interesting. Um, there's this theme all throughout the Bible about taking in uh, things that are from other nations or taking in peoples that are not from, that are not sanctified, that are not holy, and how Israel is told not to do that. And um, we actually, we, we skimmed over because Stephen's just hitting the highlights of his sermon, but Israel took a ton of gold from Egypt. And anyway, there's the whole story of like the golden calf and how they had to melt it back down so that they would take the images out of everything because they were told to destroy the images of the pagans that were in their midst. But it, it also goes to people. And this is how I'll circle back. Sorry for all that. But Moses takes a wife. Her name is Zipporah, I think, if I remember correctly. And when he tells her, hey, my kids need to be circumcised, she gets mad at him. And she eventually does it. But she essentially says he's a bloody husband and all this other stuff. And like he's got these weird customs, right? Because she's not uh, she's not of, and I think she's closely related, but she's not of the Israelites. And so, I mean, it just goes to show there's this huge, huge thread through the Old Testament about how what God has called holy and has taught his holy laws is not to mix with that which is not holy. And whenever they take in, you know, earrings and everything else that it lists that the Israelites had that they melted together and made the cow, right? Paganism is begetting paganism in that sense. And that's why they were told so many times, especially Deuteronomy will say this over and over. When you take the land, destroy its images, tear down its groves, do not worship God as the heathen worship their gods and all these other things. Do not take of the daughters of the land for your sons, right? It says this over and over again. And the reason is not because God just dislikes these people, um, but it's because he dislikes the gods, right? It's because he is the only God, the true God. And so you can't let those influences in on your life or else uh, you're compromising yourself. And so anyway, again, you know, there's a lot of story here that Stephen's skimming over. And I'm not saying he should have said all that because they know the story. But if you as a quizzer are coming through here and you might miss the context of circumcision that's throughout here, uh, and you might miss the concept that uh, God has really called you out. And he said, be separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And anyway, every this is, the I guess, my final point. Stephen, when he's quoting through these stories and he's hitting the highlights, because the Sanhedrin knows them so well, because they grew up on them, all these other uh, parts of the story that we're bringing out are coming straight to them. And so he's, he's teaching very effectively. And if you want to put yourself into the mindset where... Stephen's story can be effective for you. It really, really is helpful if you go 
uh, back and see some of that for yourself. And of course, watching this podcast, getting the, the content from us is okay, but I really encourage you to see it for yourself as well. So, And you know, I would say too, Jonathan, Stephen actually does mention the golden calf in verse 41 of the chapter. Yes. And then uh-huh. he connects the golden calf right to the prophets and the prophets were accusing Israel of taking up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your God, Rimfan. Hey, and I think, spoilers, spoilers. Spoilers. Okay, this but, next... I mean, I'm just, just giving them a little taste, but it's a good point. Saying that is like looking at, like watching the chosen and being like, Jesus dies. What? <laughs> 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 but All the right. point is like what what Stephen's trying to get at is in the Old Testament it was idolatry of other gods and and the figures and the idols that they made for those other gods in the New Testament he's saying you're not idolizing different gods you're idolizing the things of God and you're making mm-hmm. them to be the gods in themselves you're idolizing the mm-hmm. temple and you're idolizing temple worship over the god of the temple mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's a good point Amen. Yeah, and then also, um, Jonathan, you brought up the point of uh, like the whole story with Zipporah and circumcising their sons. What's interesting, um, we also see it's kind of a crazy occurrence that happens there. Moses is getting ready to go back to Egypt, but an angel is waiting for him in the way and is going to kill Moses. And I think um, if I remember correctly, there might be a little bit more to this, but I think one of the reasons why the angel was standing by to kill him is because he hadn't circumcised their family and uh, what I can gather there is Moses was going to preach something that he himself also had not lived out even in his own family. So uh, again, there's that hypocrisy element that God has to deal with in Moses. You know, we saw it when he killed the Egyptian and had to, you know, was trying to resolve the conflict in a peaceful way. And here, you know, God, God doesn't handle hypocrites lightly, you know, and we see that again, like I mentioned with all the Pharisees and all the people in the Sanhedrin, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you know, you say that, you know, with your mouth, you honor me, but your heart is far from me. You know, you say you are going to do this, but in reality, you haven't obeyed me in heart. So God still is to the point where God is ready to kill Moses, the person that he just called a few verses earlier. You know, God wants us to be obedient and to um, to honor him and to practice what we preach. Amen. Good. Amen. All right. Um, I think that's a that's a great place for us to wrap up the uh, scripture portion. Um, is obviously a long chapter. We've we've been going quite a while on on the first half ish or so. So we're not going to um, we're not going to go through our charting and stuff. I'll wait till next uh, next episode to do the whole chapter because there there is I like to do the whole chapter charting. Um, but we will do some pronouns. There are, there are a few that Eric pulled out of the chapter. So um, before we get there, though, uh, I think um, I think we can do a a. If someone has an MVP verse, they can say. We don't have to do MVP verses for a half a chapter, but does anyone have a, their favorite verse that stuck out so far? No? Putting you guys on the spot? Yeah. I mentioned it before. I really like 9, where it says, The patriarchs moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him. And uh, again, like I mentioned, I don't think that but God was with him is so much of an encouraging statement as it is a God was fulfilling prophecy kind of statement. And I love that about prophecy. 
even like Peter says when he's writing his epistles, he says, you know, we were eyewitnesses. That's great. But we have a more sure word of prophecy wherein to you do well that you take heed, right? That is what man can do. Man can be an eyewitness. That's fine, right? You can see something, you can share it, and that's fantastic. But when God really wants to prove himself, he's going to fulfill prophecy. He'll say, this is what I'm going to do. Before he does it, he'll do it. And then he'll point backwards and say, this is what I accomplished. And that's exactly what he does with Jacob. Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. I think mine is verse three, talking about um, the words of God to Abraham. And God said unto him, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and come into the land, which I shall show thee. I think that's a beautiful um, depiction of the call of God. And God chooses, you know, little by little to fulfill his grand plan for our lives. It's not going to be all in one night. It's not going to be all in one year. But I think in a series of trusting in the Lord, we come into the full picture of what God's calling us to do. I like uh, 34, actually the very last one. Did I steal it from you? Logan? Yes, you did, Avery. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. And I like it because there's this element, uh, I think Brother Joel Urshan preached on it one time, but anytime God says something twice, yeah. he's really trying to draw emphasis on something. So the whole thing with God saying here, I have seen, I have seen. He's saying, I have, he's like, rest assured, I have absolutely seen the affliction of my people and I am going to act on it. So, you know, God sees you, you know, it's uh, not only just for the Israelites back then, but even now in your affliction, God sees you. So I love that verse. All right. Logan, we know yours was 34. It's yeah. Okay. All right. Mine was 34. I'll, I'll pick one next week or next episode. <laughs> Sounds good. Sorry, man. <laughs> Sorry. Right, you got to jump, jump in there. You got to jump in there. And, and I was trying. Version. Avery jumped in first. <laughs> Well, all right. So um, this is obviously such a unique chapter in the book of Acts. You know, there's there's a unique chapter in the Bible, obviously. Um, And it's a it's a great it's a great that we it's great that we get to learn it this year. Uh, We didn't learn it the last time we did Acts. So even um, even the the former quizzers that quizzed recently, they uh, this is new to a lot of quizzers memorizing why. So. Excited that we get to do it this year and dive in. It was a lot of fun writing questions on this chapter, that's for sure. So, with that being said, let's uh, let's throw it over to Eric for some pronoun breakdown. Yeah, sure thing. So, before I get into pronouns, um, I did want to bring up one error in the study guide that Audrey LeBlanc, shout out to my former quizzer, Audrey LeBlanc, she actually talked to Brother Faubert this past weekend about it, and I think it's going to be in the next POI. But um, if you look in the back of your study guide, verse 16 says that Sikkim or Sikkim, Sikkim, <laughs> Sikkim <laughs> is a geographical location twice named, but really one's a geographical location, the first instance of Sikkim. And then the next instance is the proper name, the person of Sikkim. So one's a geographical location and one's a proper name, which is a cool way to ask a quotation completion about that both the geographical location and the name the proper name sickle you know is contained in the single verse but a different <laughs> philip didn't write that one but. <laughs> so uh you'll probably see that on the next version of the poi um but kind of starting on pronouns um verse two i think this is pretty obvious but steven's only named once in the chapter and it's at the very end of the chapter verse 60 and they stole steven I think, is that the last verse of the, the study? Um, or no, that's verse 59. 59. The second to last verse. Yeah. Um, 
Stephen's only named once, but every instance where Stephen is referred to, you if it's open to the chapter, you still have to ID he as Stephen. So, and he said in verse two, referring back to Stephen in verse fifty nine. Um, verse four, and from thence, when his father um, was dead, from thence, referring back to Quran, right in the same verse. Um, verse four. Um, in the same verse, when his father was dead, he removed him into this land wherein ye now dwell. The ye, and whenever he's um, referring to the second or the third person uh, pronoun, ye, you, he's talking um, about the men, brethren, and fathers in verse number two, right? So obviously it's the council or the Sanhedrin. We just don't have the word council. And the chapter and the pronoun rule is right by chapter. We have to go by what uh, Stephen called them, which is men, brethren, and fathers in verse number two. Can I can I bring up another point? Um, yep. There's a lot of exam. There's a lot of verses where Stephen uses our, and so you would think it's like okay. Then I had to say Stephen and men, brethren, and fathers. But that's not how it works. If there's not a single antecedent for an hour. Then it is it is it is not necessary to clarify it. So um, we we're not pulling in two different antecedents into one pronoun specification. So um, when he says our fathers, he's talking about himself and the people he's speaking to. We don't have a antecedent to refer to. Yeah, there's no Stephen and men, brethren, and fathers as a phrase in the study. So right. Um. Verse five, and he gave him none inheritance in it. The it refers back to this land, right? Um, in verse number uh, four. Now, I've also uh, doing some research. I've come to know that this land is also referring back to Canaan in verse 11. I would not say Canaan. <laughs> I would just say this land because that's the direct antecedent. But fun fact there. Um. Verse 14, then sent Joseph and called his father Jacob to him and all his kindred. His kindred refers to Joseph's kindred, not Jacob's kindred. It's the you same, might, you know. Yeah. You know, but it is his is. Is, is referring uh, to Joseph. Yeah, it's not the direct um, antecedent that you would think it would be, which is Jacob. It goes back to Joseph at the beginning of the verse. Um, verse 17, but when the time of the promise drew nigh, which God had sworn to Abraham, the which refers back to the promise, not the time of the promise. God didn't swear the time of the promise, but God swore the promise to Abraham. Verse 19. I'm, like, I'm really glad you pointed that one out. That one, that was a good one. Yeah. Sometimes you get confused with, because you would think it's the whole prepositional phrase, but God didn't tell Abraham when he was going to do it, right? He just told him that he was going to do it. So um, verse 19, the same dealt subtly with our kindred, the same referring back to another king in verse 18. I have a lot here, guys. Sorry. <laughs> and then uh, verse 26. And the next day he showed himself unto them that he refers back to Moses, um, not referring back to um the one that was oppressed or the brethren in verse 25. The next day he, Moses, showed himself unto them, his brethren, as they strove. 
Um, verse 27, but he that did his neighbor wrong thrust him away. The him refers to Moses, not his neighbor. All right. So he that did his neighbor wrong, that was fighting against his neighbor, push or thrust Moses away. Verse 29, then fled Moses at that saying or at this saying. This saying refers to all the words of he that did his neighbor wrong in verses 27 and 28. So it starts at who made thee a ruler and a judge over us. And it goes into wilt thou kill me as thou didst the Egyptian yesterday. Verse 31. This is my last one. And when, uh, when Moses saw it, he wondered at the sight. It refers back to um, the angel of the Lord in the, in a flame of fire in a bush, the, uh, the angel of the Lord appearing to Moses in verse 30. And that's all I have, Phil. All right. Thank you, Eric. I know there's, there seems to be more chatter about pronouns this year in the preseason than I've ever heard people worrying about pronouns and trying to figure things out, which is great because we want to take the time to figure all that out. Um, I just would, you know, don't just trust anything you hear. Take the time. Look at other versions of the Bible. I refer to the Amplified and the NLT and the ESV. Um, so that it may be sometimes the what is that one the the pigeon what is it called the Hawaiian pigeon the Hawaiian pigeon Bible <laughs> every once in a while um, there's now the pirate version of the Bible too so if you ever need some bedtime reading check out check out the pirate version you know we may Ahoy. we may read that version for the next half of chapter seven we'll see we may all right anyway um, thank you Eric for the time so I'm gonna put everybody on the spot. Um, for to to end this thing here, I would like if if someone would, what is a hard lesson, um, that you learned through Bible quizzing? Maybe a tough loss, maybe a humbling, but you know, maybe it can be you know, it, it doesn't have to be a a sermon. But um, is there some some hard lesson that you learned? We talked about a lot of hard things that people went through in the Old Testament. What is something hard to you? What was your Old Testament hard lesson? Um, well, yeah. Oh, go ahead, Eric. I was just going to say, um, you said hard loss. And uh, I would say, does it need to be referring to the book of Acts or just in regards to no. quizzing in general? No, dude, no um, we're, 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 we're just talking. This is quizzing I'd stories. Say, but I, I want to know the lesson you learned. Uh, 2016. 2016, the Book of Romans was a monumental year for me, not because of quizzing, because I was terrible that year, um, but because of um, just life lessons that God taught me. And um, that that year was the year that Sister Walker did her devotions at NABQT. And still to this day, I still listen to those devotions. If you're a quizzer, if you're a coach listening to this, Get get to that devotion on YouTube. Listen to it. Have your quizzers listen to it. It's it was a you could ask Sister Elkins this, who was the leader of our pro, of our quiz program at the time. Um, it was a program changing devotion. I'll never forget. There were um, that after the second devotion, uh, we had a team meeting in the hotel room at NABQT, and she pulled us all into the room and she told us all, she looked at, at all of us. And she told us all, she said, from this day forward, our program will never be the same. And she sat there and she apologized to each and every quizzer 
because she treated she told us she treated quizzing like a game and she told us in that moment we all prayed we all repented and we all made a covenant with god from that day forward that quizzing would no longer be a competition no i'm sorry quizzing would no longer be a game there's competition in quizzing um, but it was no longer a game it was no longer about a baseball it was about a duck it was about a duck with his hands lifted high with one hand lifted high with another hand behind his back that changed my outlook on life entirely. And I'll say that from that moment forward, I even, I brought this up to um, our ensemble team when I was on music tour with CLC um, in one of my devotions. And I told them all, I said, um, we took first week of tour, we took a week and we had rehearsals that entire week. There was one rehearsal we had that was 10 hours long. The next was eight. The final one was five hours. It was over 20 hours in three days that we did just rehearsals for 16 songs. And I told the group, I said, we've done everything that we can to make sure that we sound good. I said, we've taken the time. We've taken the energy. We've put everything we could into the music side of this. I said, but if we take what we have on the music side and we, and we think that that's what will make God move, that that's what we think that will happen in a service, that, that God is just going to move because we sound perfect, which we didn't sound perfect. But if that's what we think is going to happen, then we are sorely mistaken. And I brought up um, Zechariah 4.6. And I said, it is not by our might and it's not by our power, and it's, but it's by God's spirit. And I used the analogy. I said, we take all of our practices. We take our rehearsals. We take the time that we put in on our own before rehearsals the hours that we prepared on our own before we even got to this tour, before we even took a step into campus, before we even took a step into a church. I said, we take all of that and we put it behind our back and we say, okay, God, I've done my part. I've done my preparation. I've done everything that I can do for this moment. Now I'm going to worship you. And still that, that devotion still wrecks me. It's still, it still changes my life on a daily basis that every, yes, we prepare. Yes, we do everything that we can to make sure that we are in the right place, the right time that we do our studies, that we do our preparation, that we make sure we give God an excellent sacrifice. Be excellent in everything you do. Give God everything. But at the end of the day, understand that it's not your preparation, that it's not your talent. It's not your power. It's not your might. That's going to do anything. It's you saying, God, okay, God, I give you everything now. And whatever you want to give me, whether that's a loss, whether that's a win, I'll take it. Just as long as I'm worshiping you and pleasing you in my worship. Amen. Amen. That's so good. Kind of along the lines of 2016, I guess that was kind of all most of our years of um, coming to that revelation because um, it was the same year. It was the same nationals that Logan was talking about. Um, that I was on a team with um, one of my friends, Lauren Henry, and we were in round two. We were quizzing against our friends from Alexandria, the Pentecostals of Alexandria. And it was the game to determine who was going to get into trophy rounds at nationals. And so it was a very high intense game. And uh, the tens, you know, we came out down and then the twenties um, we, we got, we got caught back up and, they look, it looked great going into the 30s. I'd actually locked it twice on question number 19. Um, once One was an interruption that I got correct. 
And then they contested the question, got the question thrown out. Um, and so it, a new question was read. The next one, um, Carson on the Alexandria team, he hit interrupted. We got the reread. They contested that question, got that question thrown out. And then the last question, I think I hit missed and then they got the reread and that was the game. And so that's a tough loss. <laughs> Whenever you're, whatever you thought that you got the trophies twice and then it taken away from you, that shook me. And I'll be honest, leaving that, that stage, I just wanted to get out of there. <laughs> and it kind of just, I'd just be by, my, by myself for a couple of hours and, and soak in my, uh, my despair. But it wasn't even at that nationals, you know, I was in those devotions with sister Walker and those were moving devotionals, but it was at, after that nationals that I had a choice to make, right. Was I going to study again for the next year? Was I going to put in all the time maybe to get the same results? And it was in the, it was in those moments that God showed me, you know, like Logan was mentioning, this is not a baseball. We're not doing this to win a game. This is the word of God. And I felt like God spoke to me so strong. It was almost like a, a Paul at Damascus experience, right? Like in Acts chapter nine, I had to get off of my high horse and realize that I wasn't the best, right? I wasn't some big shot that was just going to go into nationals and take it all because I deserved this. And I put in the work because I felt like I put in more work than anybody else. But at the end of the day, that didn't justify me right? Winning all these games and, and heaping up glory for myself. And I had a decision to make, you know, was I going to quiz for the right reasons and learn the word of God because of my relationship with God, or was I going to sulk in my pride? And it was in that moment that I felt like God was like in the old Testament, he was saying, it's not even your power to get wealth because I've given you the power to learn the verses in the first place. Right. And so we like to say, well, I did this and I put in the time. So I deserve this. But it's God who gives you the ability to do all these things. God gives you the intelligence to do all those things right. to begin with. And so I, from that moment on, I sacrificed my, my time and my efforts to God. And just like Logan said, I said, whether I win or I lose, I give it unto you. Because sometimes, you know, Ecclesiastes is a great book to read if you want to look at the exceptions, right? Mm -hmm. Proverbs gives us great principles, but sometimes... Yeah. It doesn't happen like that. There are exceptions right. in life. Sometimes the race is not to the swift. Sometimes the bread is not to the wise. Sometimes, you know, things don't go your way and you have to be okay with that and say, God, in the wins or in the losses, you're not going to judge me by how I do, how I perform at the quiz board, but you are going to judge me in my faithfulness and preparation. And if you're faithful in preparation to, um, to give God your all, right, you might never see it. And a trophy. You might never see it in a quiz board, but I can guarantee you that God does keep good records and that God will reward you. Maybe not, you know, in your quiz career, but you're going to see it come up and bear fruit in your life and in some way in your walk with God. Amen. Thank you. Thank you both for being vulnerable um, and being open about that. Uh, anything else? I mean, for me, just thinking through, those are great lessons. I think mine is a little bit less profound, but it meant a lot to me. And that's really that speed quoting is not witnessing. And so uh, when I, both my brother and I, when we went, finally got to quizzing, uh, both of the years that we were in, we were in college and we were at an academic university that was very, like, was a seminary. And so I had a bunch of friends 
who grew up on, on Greek Trinitarianism, essentially. And uh, anyway, we had a lot of incredibly good discussions. But when I started learning the verses for the doctrine year, um, I would come back and I, I felt so great just going, you know, bang, 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 quoting all these verses as fast as I could. And, and the point, and anyway, the point is not to sound good when you're witnessing. And I think I was focusing on that way too much because I was like, you know what? These guys have been beating me over the head with Greek for a long time. I still don't know Greek, but boy, do I know the scripture and I'll just hit them with it. And Isaiah 55, 11 says that God's word will go forth as he sends it. It will not return void. So that good. part was great, right? The part that I was quoting the scriptures, but I think I had to learn it's not about it's not about me because as, as bad as it seems, as horrible as people can be, they can quote the scripture for themselves. And I was definitely doing that. I was like, Hey, you know, I want to finally look smart. I want to finally look like I've done all my study right with these guys who know the Greek or whatever. And, uh, I just had to slow down and put things in context. And my brother helped me with that a lot. Um, anyway, it's good to have a friend there with you, but it's not about you when you quote and make all the show, right? Even if you're witnessing and you know, I was able to make it about me, which is not a talent. Um, it was something God had to work out of me. But I think if you'll just go hold the word, absolutely hold it closely, use it uh, in witnessing, but make sure that you're speaking in a way that people understand you. And it's not just the speed. It's I'm really getting at like the arrogance behind it. If, if anything, I was quoting an arrogance and that's never a way to, to teach someone. And so God had to to give me several places where I would talk to these people. And I was like, what do you, what do you mean? You don't believe me. I just quoted like 60 verses that say that you're wrong. And they're like, well, you know, it didn't, it didn't click because I wasn't making it connect to them because I, it was really more about me. And, and I had to learn, even with quoting the word, even with witnessing, don't make it about yourself. Jonathan, before Avery says something, I want to say something. You said before you told your story that it may not be as profound as mine and Eric's, but I want to point out something that, is extremely profound. You, you said you were getting at the arrogance behind it. And, and if I may, you were quoted, you, you would say you were quoting with arrogance, handling the word of God with humility is the most profound thing you could do because as quizzers, I, 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 I hate to say that it may be something that we all struggle with. Maybe it was just something that I struggled with, but I, I could see a, multiple quizzers struggling with this, but I've learned 550 verses of the Bible. I could beat you over the head with scripture. What good is that going to do? And you said something so profound, handling God's word with humility is so vitally important. And to every quizzer out there listening, pray for humility in your quoting. Pray for humility in everything that you do, in re not just in quizzing, but in life. Um, that's, it's something that I have to pray for. I pray for that every day because I struggle with it. We all struggle with it. There's There are always things that you're going to struggle with in regards to pride and arrogance. And handling the word of God with humility is, that was perfect. Because that may, you, what you said, someone may be struggling with that. Someone may be struggling with, I, I'm quoting all these verses of these people and they're not getting it. Yeah. Maybe yeah. Look, at, look, at, look at the heart. You know, maybe there's, maybe there's something in me that I'm doing, that I'm handling this in the wrong way that God's trying to show me. And I just wanted to, I just wanted to say that. Thank you. Cause that, that's awesome. Yeah. Peter says to be ready to give an answer with meekness and fear. You know, it's both. It's, you gotta be able to give the answer, but then 
know how to give the answer, right? It's right. the spirit with which you give the answer that's just as important as, as having the knowledge. Amen. All right. Avery, I know you didn't learn much in quizzing, but if you have anything to share. <laughs> I would say the hardest lesson that I learned in quizzing wasn't necessarily a quizzing related thing, but um, it is in the fact because I quizzing was what first really introduced me to the word of God. You know, I was seven when I started quizzing. And before that, you know, like I just went to church, you know, I knew the Bible stories. I've been baptized. I knew that Jesus died for my sins and everything, but like I had yet to really dive into the word of God. And as I've gotten older, you know, 11 years of quizzing passed. And then some, if you count the years that I've been out of quizzing, being around the word of God has showed me how really, how weak I really am. You know, the word of God, when you get around, when you get around it, it really opens you up and it shows all of your flaws. It shows every, every area of your life that you can change and that you can get better at. You know, honestly, if I'm just being open and transparent, there have been some things even in my life now recently where I've looked at myself and I'm like, man, I hate that about myself. I need to do better. And part of that has been because I see how I'm supposed to be in the word of God, you know? So if anything, Bible quizzing taught me that it, even though like, yes, the word of God being around, it shows you how weak you really are, but it also shows me that in all of my weakness, and I've said this before, in all of my weakness, it is the perfect time for God to be made strong. Right. You know, and sometimes I can't help but look at myself and think humble thoughts because I honestly, you know, I look at myself and sometimes all I can see is my failures. All I can see is my screw ups, but the word of God shows us that when we are weak, sometimes when we feel down on ourselves, the word of God can make us strong. You know, God is made strong and the grace of God is made perfect in our weakness. So if Bible quizzing and being around the word of God has showed me anything, it's that God's grace is sufficient. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you guys for uh, letting me put you on the spot and for being open and transparent tonight. So um, it's a great way to close us out. Thank you guys, Eric, Jonathan, Logan, Avery. It's been another good episode, and we will be back soon for the last half of Chapter 7. Thanks, everyone.